So as you can see, Pastor Mike is not here. Um, the uh, fire is close to 3,000 acres. Uh, and, uh, yep, it's, it's what they consider zero containment. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's thankfully, and it's, it's an area um, that is not um, populated. They are having to do some structure protection. They've lost no structures whatsoever. Uh, they've been dropping a lot of uh, retardant on it. If you're paying attention to Facebook and you see the updates, uh, the updates are often based off of the report in the morning, and then they, and it doesn't report about what they're doing throughout that day. Um, so it's not always the most... It's current, but it's constantly changing at every point. Um, yeah, it started with, it was a lightning strike. It was, and it was in a very cliffy, very hard to get to, very unpopulated area. Um, and uh, because it was such a dangerous terrain and it was so far removed from any populous areas, um, they were watching it but letting it burn, which, I mean, that's nature. That's perfectly fine to let that happen. And um, it, one day it would look like it was out, and then a couple of days later it would begin to smolder and pop back up and things like that. And, uh, and uh, the, the fire conditions, of course, the wind pushes it. Um, I was talking to him about it in some pretty good detail, and, Typically, fire behavior, uh, the fire will run up a mountainside, but once it reaches the crest, it'll usually just creep down because it's burning against the flow. Um, this fire is not slowing down when it's coming down the, sl down the slopes. It's, it's staying busy. And a big chunk of the area that's burning, uh, this is why prescribed burns. A lot of people complain about prescribed burns. A lot of people complain about the smoke and stuff that happens from prescribed burns, but a big chunk of the area that's burning, they actually did a prescribed burn on it just last year, and it still has that much fuel to burn to the degree that it's burning. Um, so this is why we're thankful for prescribed burns. Can you imagine what it would be doing if it still had all that fuel from last year? Uh, so, um, But they're working on it. Uh, they're keeping it contained, um, and a lot of people don't understand this. A lot of people think, I mean, we run into this all the time, a lot of people think that you fight a wildfire like you fight a house fire. But that's completely wrong. With a house fire, because it's contained and because you're dealing with a lot of man-made materials and chemicals and things like that, you have to have the breathing apparatuses, because a lot of what's burning is very damaging to the lungs. Uh, when the wind, when the woods burn, it's all natural materials. And, of course, smoke irritates sinuses and it irritates the lungs, but you're not dealing with all of that chemical compounding. Um, and plus, they're having to hike miles upon miles. And if they had to hike miles upon miles with oxygen tanks that run low and everything else, They'd never get to it. So how a wildfire is fought is with fire. So a lot of times when a fire 
begins to move and begins to travel very quickly, what they do is they back up to another location and they and they purposely start a fire to burn toward the fire so to, to eat up all the fuels so that the fire that is on the run that's uncontrolled uh, runs out of food. And that's basically what you have to do with these wildfires is basically you have to uh, put brakes in there where the fire um, doesn't have any more fuel to consume and then it will go out. Um, this fire, however, and that's what they're attempting to do, they're doing it with hand lines, they're doing it with dozers, they're doing it with water dumps from helicopters and the, and the small one-engine planes. They've actually got three large tankers um, that are dropping a massive amount of retardant on a rotating schedule. So they've got, I mean, they, they're, they're not taking it lightly. They're not taking it lightly. When they use the engines, because you can't, here's the deal, you can't run fire hoses, you know, 20 miles into the woods. That ain't going to work. <laughs> no, they can't do that. What they use the water engines for is to protect structures, is to protect structures. That's what those are for, um, and to help kind of, and, and to help kind of secure the lines um, and, and, to, and to quickly put out what they call uh, hot spots, which are where, uh, the, where embers will cross the line and restart the fire. You can, a lot of times, if it restarts close to the fire line, they can use an engine and get that out before it takes off. So they are working on it. Um, and then, of course, I know several people know that there was a fire out in Morrow, uh, out on Morrow Road. And then, of course, there's another fire uh, going on in Turtle Town. Um, so there's just this is this is our fire season. This is normal. Uh, we haven't seen a big heavy fire season in a couple of years, uh, so we're kind of out of practice. In fact, the last big fire season we saw was in 2016, and of course you'll remember that was the big one that went from Clay County over towards Franklin, and that was the same, that was happening at the same time that Gatlinburg caught on fire. So those are the last fires that are in everybody's minds, and so everybody's kind of like ah. But uh, they're working on it. No houses have been endangered at this point. Um, at least that's the last update I had. And they also brought in a bigger management team. Uh, and uh, they're, they're actually going to set up over here at the hospital at the old nursing home. Uh, they started setting up that today. And then um, so, they, so they're, they're taking it very, very seriously. And uh, so that's why Pastor Mike's not here tonight is because he's part of that team uh, to help get that to help get all the resources they need to fight the fire. Oh, yes. Okay. The daughter. Yes, I did see that. Yeah, Bridget brought up that there were two structure fires in Franklin. One of them. Uh, it was a it was a young family, a husband and a wife and two small children. The wife and the daughter did not make it out of the fire. Uh, so prayers for that family, of course. Then we had a fire over here at a home in Texano, which I'm sure was a total loss. Um, so it's dry out there. It's dry, 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 dry. Um, they're expecting a, maybe a tenth of an inch of rain on Friday, which is going to do nothing. Uh, but give the firefighters a little bit of relief. 
Um, and then, because I, I asked him, I said, when's the, next, when's the next rain forecasted? And he said, after that, there's no rain forecasted for at least the next 10 days. So, uh, prayers for rain. Prayers for rain, prayers for rain. Uh, what we do not want is a hurricane, because then that turns into mudslides. <laughs> so we just want good, slow, steady rain to move in. That's what we need. And uh, so we'll pray, and then we'll get into the Word tonight. And then uh, we'll pray and do our confession and get into the Word. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we just love you. We adore you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. Ooh, Lord, we just, oh, we're so thankful. We are so honored and a privilege to come together in your name. Father, we're just so honored to gather to study your word, to learn of you, to grow deeper in our relationship with you, to, to have our understanding illuminated, enlightened by your spirit, Father God. And Father, as we approach your word tonight, we ask that you give each and every person a spirit of wisdom, revelation, and knowledge, opening up their eyes of understanding that they may come to see and know the wonderful, miraculous, good work of Christ. Now, Father, we speak to these fires in this region and in this area, and we command them to be still and to decease and to stop in their maneuvers. We command them to come to an end. Father, we call for rain, light, uh, just a, a light, persistent rain that will moisten the area but not cause damage. And, Father, we call that into this area in Jesus' mighty name. Father, we lift up this family and this whole area in Franklin uh, where a mother and her daughter was lost to a, to a house fire. And, Father, we just thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. Father, we ask that you strengthen, equip, and give the, give the firefighters and all those associated with them the wisdom, the knowledge, the know-how of where to put in the fire lines and how to hold the lines so that the fire loses all of its fuel. And, Father, we, just, we ask that you keep them safe no matter what fire they're on. And, Father, we give you all the glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, let's do our confession tonight. We do this confession not for God's benefit but for our benefit helps us to remember because sometimes life gets busy and we can just put this on a shelf or a book stand or nightstand and get so busy that we forget the importance of this book. So let's confess. This is my Bible. It is always true and the final authority. My Bible is God talking to me. I read this word daily. I meditate on this word day and night. This word is rooted and grounded in my heart. This word feeds and grows my spirit. Therefore, my flesh does not control me. I walk according to the Spirit. I am a child of God. I have the mind of Christ. God's thoughts are my thoughts. God's words are my words. God's actions are my actions. I am a doer of the word. Glory to God. It's so good to be a doer of the word. I think we need to pay a little more attention sometimes to uh, the reason we get the word inside of us is so that our flesh does not control us.
Now, here's the deal, though. Just because you have the word in you does not automatically mean your flesh will behave itself. The reason that you put the word in you is so that you have the tool that you need to make your flesh obey. Let me say that again. The reason that we get the word down on, if getting the word in us will not automatically make our flesh behave. The reason we get the word in us is so that we have the tools that we need to make our flesh behave. Your flesh is not going to automatically walk in love. In fact, your flesh is automatically going to walk in pride. It's automatically going to walk in, in haughtiness. Uh, you know, high, being high-minded, your flesh is automatically going to walk in, uh, believe it or not, hatred toward, uh, toward other people. Your heart is not, your flesh, excuse me, your flesh is not going to automatically be kind and sweet. In fact, your flesh is not going to automatically be faithful. You have to train it to be faithful. You have to train your brain. Listen to me. We have to train our brains. We have to train our brains. What do you mean train my brain? You have to train your brain. If you don't, you so many people say, well, I have OCD. That's just the way I am. No, no, no. In fact, I don't even let anybody anybody around me claim that they have OCD if they know Jesus Christ. I tell them, no, no, no. You are an organized person of Christ at most. An organized person of Christ. There is such a thing as called a spirit of excellence. And so when you allow your spirit to lead, your spirit will automatically leave a place cleaner than you found it. Better than you found it. A a spirit of excellence will automatically do things the right and proper way instead of the lazy world's way. No, no, no. Uh, no, we don't have to have OCD. No, uh, you know, used to be, they used to say, I'm a perfectionist. Well, somewhere along the lines, being a perfectionist became a bad thing. But don't you know that the work of Christ was perfect? Everything that Christ did was a perfect work. Everything he did was an absolute perfect work. Christ is the ultimate perfectionist. And we're made in his image. So we shouldn't deter. So we, should, we don't need to tear ourselves down because we're people of perfection. Now, if you're not careful, that desire to be perfection uh, can, can control you instead of you controlling it. But no, we need to control it. We need to control our minds. The Bible tells us Jesus came, came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means change. If you have a very worldly mind, if your thinking is very worldly, then you need to change the way you think. You need to change how you approach life. You need to begin to look at things differently. You need to change. In the book of Galatians, Paul was challenging uh, the Jews and the Gentiles alike to change. That's what he was doing. He was challenging them to change. In fact, in tonight's uh, scriptures, we're going to see that he said, 
going back to the rudimentaries, going back to the elements that you were trained in, going back to traditions is actually putting you back into bondage. And you've got to change your thinking. You've got to change. You know, we just went through Halloween and, and tradition. I mean, we... Whatever, whatever you believe, Christians participate in it, non-Christians participate in it, all these things. You know, traditionally as Americans, we raise our children that on October 31st you dress up and you pretend to be something that you're not. You know, and, 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 and in some cases you pretend to be a fairy princess or something sweet, and in other cases you pretend to be something murderous and devilish. Now, but that, you know, but so what are we teaching our children from a young age? We teach our children that it's okay to, to pretend to be something that you're not and that this is acceptable. Uh, we, you know, and then when you come into Christ and you find out the actual history of that holiday, you find out, oh, um, you know, the whole thing about the tricker and the treating and all that, uh, that they actually, if, if it was basically, People would dress up to be beggarly, and if the people did not take, if if the if the homeowners did not uh, provide them with whatever it was that they wanted, they would actually do horrific things to that family. It was, it, I mean, and the history of jack-o'-lanterns, and if you go research all that stuff, you'll find out there's all kinds of crazy stuff around the Halloween. Um, and, and I'm not dogging Halloween. If you like to dress up and go do that, well, that's between you and Jesus. I I've learned some things, and I, therefore I choose no longer to participate. That's not the sermon for tonight. But what I'm saying is uh, I've, I learned when I came into Christ, I learned that my thinking was not in agreement with God, and therefore I had to purpose in my heart to change my thinking. I used to think that if I just if I was just myself and this was my comfortable position, um, it was no big deal. That's how I that's how I was comfortable. But then I found out that body language is ninety percent of communication. And so if you're like this, especially if you have your head down and you won't look at anybody, what your your the words of your mouth may say. Um, no, I'm friendly. I'm fine. But the but your body language says I'm very cut off and don't come near me. Don't mm, 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 mm. no. So I had to learn because of because of low self image. I had to learn that it wasn't that people uh, disliked me. I had to learn that I was sending out a signal that I disliked them. So I had to change. I had to change. So I had to learn to do this. I had to learn to drop my arms. I had to learn to look pe I had to learn to look up. I had to learn to smile. I had to learn to communicate differently. I learned through the word of God that gossip is not okay with God. And I learned that eavesdropping on people's conversations and putting in my two cent when my two cent wasn't asked for was a form of gossip. It is. And so I had to learn not to just intrude into conversations just because I felt like I wanted to. Because that's not appropriate. It's not good godly character. I had to make changes. And that's what Paul is teaching um, 
the, the teaching here in the church of Galatia. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. We're in part um, 7. <laughs> we're in part 7 of Galatians, and we're going to start in Galatians 4. And, and we're going to see that Paul says, you know, there's some things that you were taught and trained in that you need to change. Uh, remember, all the way through Galatians, we were showing you that in Galatia, uh, they had, remember, Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Paul was sent to those outside of the Jewish lineage. He was sent to those outside of the covenant of God to preach Christ. Uh, and as he was doing that, and as the New Testament churches were growing, there were Jews that were coming in and trying to get these new believers, the ones that were Jews or the ones that were Gentiles that are now believers in the Jewish God, they, they were trying to bring them back under the Jewish, the Old Testament Jewish law. And we're going to see some pretty amazing things right here in um, right off the bat. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, Now, Father, as I approach the word, I ask that you think through my mind, speak through my lips, the very oracles of God, use my tongue as that of the pen of the ready writer, to express that that you would have expressed to your people. And, Father, I thank you that you make it plain and you make it easy. And now in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, it says, Now I say... Uh, now, that word that is italicized, and to get the fullness of this, we take out the italicized words in some places. He said, now I say, the heir, as long as he is a child, differ nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. Now, Paul has been talking to them through scripture things, and he said, let me make it this real simple. He said, if you're an heir, because remember in chapter 3, he talked a lot about the seed and that the seed is Christ. And if you are, if you are in Christ, then you are of the seed. And if you're of a seed, if you are part of the seed, then you are heir to the promise. What is an heir? An heir is someone who, who receives what the person that they're an heir from, for example, um, Pastor, Ma if something were to happen to Pastor Michael and I, uh, we have people that will be an heir to us. They will acquire everything that we have, everything that we have. And because, uh, and, and, and in certain situations, when you are an heir, depending on how things are set up, you get to take part uh, even while that person is alive. My grandparents had what they called a trust. And in that trust, they said, that we've got these many children, we've got these many grandchildren, and... Um, each person gets an equal, each of the children get an equal share. And if the children isn't alive at our passing, then their children, each child, gets an equal share of their share. However, when they were alive, because it was in a trust, 
if if somebody if a child or a grandchild needed anything my grandparents could just reach into the trust because they're an heir to the trust and could give it to them as a trust without penalty as an heir why because it was already established that way so we as heirs of christ even though Christ is still alive and on the throne today, we get to take part in everything that already belongs to Jesus. We get to take part in all of the riches of heaven. We get to take part in the full health of Christ. We don't have to wait. So many people, so many believers are waiting to get to the great by and by the eternal heaven to take anything, to take in, to take part in any part of their inheritance. They're waiting for themselves to die naturally before they take hold of their inheritance. Well, here's the deal. The one that you have an inheritance from is never going to die, so you don't need to wait for him to die before you can take part. You get to take part while he's alive. That's what it means to be an heir. You know, it wasn't that long ago uh, that the uh, Queen of England passed away. And you know what happened? The crown immediately went to the next heir, and, and everything that was hers instantly became his. Instantly. But before he ever took the crown, he was already living like a king. Already living like a king. You know? So that's what it means. He said that the heir. So if we are in Christ, we automatically become heir. But there's a comma. And it says, as long as he or she is a child. Now, that's a little weird. Does that mean that we have to stay little baby Christians to be an heir? No, that's not what it's talking about. Because remember, in the scriptures, we saw that uh, if we um, believe, go back to verse 33. I mean, chapter 3, verse 22. It says, But the Scripture has concluded all understand that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now jump down to verse 26. So if we believe in Christ, so verse 26, For ye are all the children of God. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. So as long as we maintain our faith in Christ, we belong, we remain children. As long as we remain, as long as our faith in Christ remains, we belong, we, we, uh, stay children of God. Cause I don't care how old you get, your age still don't come close to Father God's age. He will always and forever be a child. Always and forever. Always and forever will be a child. How much do you know you are always the child? You are always your parents' child. Always. Always and forever you are the child. Well, it's no different with the Father God. But notice it says back here in verse, uh, verse one, he said, he said this. He said, the heir, as long as he is a child, you coming into Christ is your choice. It's your choice. You losing your salvation is also a choice. The Father God will not force 
any person that wants to reject him after receiving him, he'll not say, he will not say, you've already received me, it's too late, there's nothing you can do about it. No. If they get so far into the world, if they get so deceived by Satan that they later wish to deny Christ through uh, their lifestyle and through their choices and through their confession, um, they can. Now, does that mean that your salvation is fragile? No. Our salvation is not fragile. God is not looking at a single action. A single action of sin cannot uh, cost you your salvation. A lot of people... Uh, will hear a very impassioned, a very emotional sermon, and 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 by the emotion they feel like, oh, I'm the worst sinner there's ever been, and you know they only let a cuss word slip out of their mouth that week, and they feel like they're headed to hell. No, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. Um, but you can, but but you can after having known the goodness of God. After having experienced the fullness of his goodness, um, get yourself into such a position that you can lose your salvation. And that's what Paul is making known here. He said, as long as you choose. That phrase, as long as, in the Greek, um, there's three different words that make up that phrase. And it talks about your position in, it, it talks about your um, spiritual position with God in a set span of time. So as long as you desire to be a child of God, you can be a child of God. But if at any point you decide, no, I don't want to play this game anymore, you know, no, I don't want to do this anymore. No, I don't, I don't want to live clean. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to serve God. I just want to have my cake and eat it too in this world. And, you know, excuse my language, but... Um, I'll just choose hell. I'll say it that way. I'll choose hell over heaven. Um, if that's your choice from your heart, God will honor it. So that's what Paul was making making a note of here. As long as he is a child, as long as you choose to live the Christian life. And as we get into these other books, you'll see that it's very much so a choice. Uh, there's some scriptures that will connect back to this later on. Um, he said, he said, different, different is uh, nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So Paul has been through chapters one, two, and three. He's been explaining the difference to, uh, between the Old Testament believer of God who is under the law and the New Testament believer of God. He's been showing the contradic- He's been showing the differences. But now he says, differeth nothing from a servant. In the old covenant, those who had faith in God were servants. God even saw them as servants. But in the new covenant, he said, you're Lord of all. You're Lord of all. What does it mean to be a Lord? Well, that's an awesome question. What it means to be a Lord is um, that you have that you are supreme in authority. You have the highest of all authority. You are the controller. 
Ever play video games? You hold that little thing in your hand? How much do you know? If, as long as you've got that in your hand and you know how to operate it, you are the controller of how the game goes. That's, how, that's, that's being a controller. Um, the Thayers says it this way. He says uh, that a Lord is he to whom a person or a thing belongs. If you are the Lord over, now we don't Lord over people, but how much you know we Lord over demons. We Lord over sickness. We Lord over circumstance. We lord, we lord over situations. We have authority over uh, situations. He says, a Lord is he, that, he to whom a person or a thing belongs. Um, it is also about which he has the power of deciding. He's a master. How much do you know we have the power to decide if sickness is going to stay in our body or not? We have the power to decide if pain gets to remain or not. We have the power to decide if poverty comes or goes. We have the power and the authority uh, to say, yeah, I'm going to let the demon hang out in my house or I'm going to kick the demon out of my house. You have authority in that area. It says this, he said, a Lord is a possessor. In other words, he has things that he possesses. Um, and he is also a disposer. Now, when you hear of disposer, you think automatically, at least I do, automatically think of the garbage disposal or the trash can or something like that. But that's not what this word disposer means. This word disposer means a distributor. A distributor, one who distributes. A bestower, one who bestows. Um, a director, one who gives directions. Or a regulator, one who regulates a situation or an outcome. He said, Paul said this, he said, we are Lord of all. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is under the Old Testament, the believers of God were servants to God. They had to do what God said do, and then God had ultimate authority. In the New Testament, the children are given all authority. Now, don't throw stones at me when, I'm, when I make this statement, but if you'll take this statement, write it down, and meditate on it, it'll change uh, how you view things in life. Um, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is uh, we become children, and we now have total lordship. We become children, and we now have total lordship which means that we are to operate as god of this world through the name of jesus you say that again the difference between the old testament and the new testament is we became children and now have total lordship meaning we are to operate as the God of this world, big G, so to speak. We aren't the big G God, but we are to operate as the big G God through the name of Jesus. Through the name of Jesus. 
That was how God originally set it up in the garden. How much do you know he hand, God said, let us, make, God, let us make man in our image and let us give them dominion and authority over the earth. That means I'm going to create them in my image and I'm going to make them the God of this world. They have all authority, power, dominion. I am giving them, I'm handing the keys over to them. Well, Jesus, but Satan stole the keys. Jesus rightfully took the keys back, rightfully gave us the keys back, and said, Now, through my name, you be the God of this world. So why is there so much evil? Why is there so much bad? Why do all these things happen? Because for the most part, the church has not operated in their God-given authority. That's why. That's why. That's why. We're not acting in our authority. All right. That's some pretty awesome revelations right there in one verse, isn't it? I mean, the nuggets that are in the scriptures are amazing. He said, though we are to, though uh, he be Lord of all, we're supposed to be Lord of all. Now, even though we're Lord of all, verse 2 is stellar to me. Uh, it says, but is under tutors and governors, talking about the children of God. Now, the, last week we talked about the schoolmaster and that the law was the schoolmaster. The law was, uh, it was in place to teach the Jews how to act upright in public and with their family and all of that. The, the law went everywhere they went to, go, to uh, govern how they lived. Very much so like a Greek and Roman schoolmaster that was with the male children until the age of manhood. Um, but this word tutor, and so when you read this, you tend to automatically think that these words tutors and governors are the same word as schoolmaster, but they're not. These two words do not mean, is not talking about schoolmaster like that. These two words are talking about a tutor. Um, that word literally means an instructor, a steward, um, and a, um, let me pull it because I want to get you the definition right. I didn't write those definitions down because they were, they were kind of lengthy, but let me just pull it. This word tutor in the Greek is epiropos, E-P-I-T-R-O-P-O-S. And it means one whose care or honor anything has been instructed, specifically a curator, somebody that's to care over something. A curator, when I think of that word curator, I think of somebody that takes care of museums. They, they really take a lot of extra care to make sure that the items in the museum are well kept and well cared for, keeps them in the right environment so that they don't break down and they don't degrade. It helps to preserve them. That's the job of a curator is to help preserve uh, the Greek word. Yeah, the Greek word is E-P-I-T-R-O-P-O-S. Uh, this word tutor also means a guardian. We understand what a guardian is. A steward or a manager of a household. 
I love this. A tutor is a manager of a household or of lands. Um, a tutor is an overseer. Specifically, a tutor in this in this word means it is one who has the care and the tutelage of children. Either where the father is dead, such as the guardian of minors, or where the father is still alive. So Paul said the children of God in the New Testament are given over to tutors. They're given over to curators, to guardians, uh, to um, overseers. Uh, now let's look at this word, and that's in the Hebrew. Let's look at this word, governor. And when we see the word governor, it's going to become very, very clear. I am not even, this word is O-Y-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. Oikonomos. Not sure that that's correct, uh, but it's O-Y-K-O-N-O-M-O-S. Sounds good to me. The man, and this word means the manager of a household or of household affairs, especially a steward, a manager, a, super in, a superintendent. Rather, that superintendent is a freeborn man, um, as was the usual, the case, which was usually the case, or a freed man or a slave. So this uh, this superintendent could be somebody that was once that, that that is free, or maybe they were once a slave. Um, but it, but their job was to be the head of the house, or the uh, Or the proprietor, uh, they're either the direct head of the house or the proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out of the proper portion to every servant and to even the children not yet of age. So the job the, the job of this um of this governor is to basically uh, take care of the household while the owner is away. That's one of the jobs of the of the governor um, to manage the farm or the land, the estate, to be an overseer. Metaphorically, it's referring to the apostles and the other Christian teachers and bishops and overseers. Basically, what Paul is saying. Because if you, uh, if you understand the fivefold ministry, if you understand that the apostle, the office of the apostle is to manage the spreading of the gospel, uh, that's what an apostle does. The apostle, his job, his or her job is to go into a region where Christ has not yet been proclaimed and push back the darkness and establish a, a, a Christian base in those regions and, and, and establish a church in those regions to grow up and build up a pastor. And then as that pastor is able to take that position, that apostle leaves there and he goes into the next area where Christ 
preached has not been preached and starts the process all over again. How much do you know? He's managing or stewarding the, the pushing forward of the gospel. The prophet, their job is to keep the church in line. That's what their job is. Their job is to declare what God is doing, what God is saying, and to bring correction to the body of Christ. How much you know? That's management. That's a management position. What does the evangelist do? The evangelist expands the household of God. They're the ones preaching and proclaiming and getting people saved. And then they take that job, then they take those people, and they hand them over into the office of the pastor-teacher. What is the pastor-teacher to do? The pastor-teacher is to instruct the children of God, to train the children, to manage the household of God. That's what the pastor-teacher job is. So what he said right here is he said, basically he says this, he said, but the children are under the fivefold ministers until the time appointed of the Father. What is the appointed time of the Father? When Jesus returns, when Jesus is here, when, the, when Jesus comes back, then the, path, then the fivefold won't be needed because Jesus will be here. That's when, that's when the, this changes. But you have to have the fivefold here. And here's the deal. No one, including Jesus, knows the appointed time. So these people that say, oh, those fivefold offices, those are done away. No. Paul said that time, those, those offices will remain until the appointed time of the Father. And until the Father says, we don't need those offices anymore then we don't need those offices anymore. And I'll even say this. I don't know that when Jesus comes back in the millennial reign, that those offices won't be remaining because the people will still need to be taught, trained, and instructed. In fact, there's many ministers, or, or I've heard many people talk about having visions. I myself have seen it in the Spirit. They talk about uh, they have had visions of heaven, and uh, the fathers of old are standing in the pulpit in the grandstands of heaven, and they're teaching the residents of heaven the word because they didn't learn it on the earth. So Dad Hagen, Smith Wigglesworth, uh, you know, the fathers of old, Oral Roberts, Billy Graham, and all of them, they're up there still, still in their offices. So I honestly don't know when that, when that appointed time is, but I can assure you it will not be until after, sometime after Jesus comes back, until sometime later. He said, but until God says that we don't need those offices anymore, those offices will remain. He said, even so, we, when we were children, now here he shifted a little bit. Now he's talking about when we were natural children. He said, even so, when we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of this of the world. That word elements, we could say it this way. We could say traditions. We could say rudimentary, the rudimentaries of life. You know, how much do you know when you were the most, most people, 
most people through the way they were raised go into bondage of Satan because they weren't taught any different. Even the Jews were in bondage because they made it all about the law instead of following God. They didn't explain that the law was a schoolmaster. They said, it's the law. That's what you got to do. You got to follow the law. I'm quite sure they complained and murmured about the law like we complain and murmur about man's law today. And you know what? It cost them. An entire generation died in the desert. Died in the desert. He said, listen. He said, we have all, when we were children, we all came into bondage. What does that word bondage mean? That word bondage means that we were slaves. How much do you know we were slaves to the way we were taught? I don't know about y'all, but for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, I thought Jesus was born on December 25th. I was shocked and appalled when I found out Jesus was not born on December 25th. That that's the day that we celebrated it. I was appalled. I didn't know. I was told, it's Jesus' birthday. Whee! That's Jesus' birthday. I was, I was shocked and amazed. Finally, my grandmother made sense years later because she always set up the nativity scene. And when she set up the nativity scene, baby Jesus could not come out to Christmas Day or Christmas Eve at midnight. Could not come out. He was tucked away hidden. I used to pull him out and play with him during the day. I did. But... The manger was all set up. The manger was set up. The cow was there. The donkey was there. Mary and Jesus were in the manger. They were all there. And then for some strange reason, the camels and the three, and the three wise men were over here somewhere. And I never understood why until, good call, until later I found out, oh, because all the Christmas cards had the wise men there. You know, all the little stories said, though, baby Jesus, and here came the three wise men. Then I found out the scriptures actually declare that the wise men didn't show up till he was a child living elsewhere. He was no longer in Bethlehem when the three wise men showed up. And I went, oh, that's why Granny always had them over there. Because they never made it to the manger. Who knew? Who knew? I'm sure we could sit down and come up with all these crazy things. Like, for example, this might mess with you. Did you know Jesus was not whipped 39 times? Some people are looking at me like, wait, what? And some people are like, yeah, that's right. No, the standard rule for a whipping by the Romans was no more than 39 whips. Because they had proven that more than 39, that a man could not physically withstand more than 39 whips. A 40th whip often, almost always meant that that criminal would die. And the Bible actually says that Jesus was whipped to the extreme. It actually, I don't remember exactly the the exact wording is coming to me in Jesus' name, but it actually says that they actually went beyond, that's what it says, it says that they went beyond the standard which means that he was whipped more than 39 times. But how much, you know, traditions, traditions. You can be raised a Christian and yet have traditions that, that cause you to not fully understand God because, and we call those sacred cows. Oh, don't tell me that. That's not how this works. No. Um, and, and because we have these set beliefs that we're unwilling to be moved off of, they take us into bondage. 
There's people I know that'll say, well, it's God will heal if it's his will. And they won't be moved off of. I got caught in a room one time with a bunch of people that believe this way. Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus. A sweet, dear friend of mine had a stroke. Mom and I had been studying on healing, healing, healing. We were ready. We had been to the hospital. We had seen some miraculous healings take place. We were pumped, primed, and ready to go in the hospital and raise our dear friend from the dead. Not he wasn't dead yet, but he was in a coma near death. I mean, we were ready. And we got to the hospital, and there was a room that was full. I mean, full. Of people. I mean, they were sitting on the table. Every chair was full. They were sitting on the tables. People were sitting in each other's laps. There were people sitting on the floor. It was standing room only. They were full. And they said, come on, let's pray for our dear brother so-and-so. And Mom and I said, yeah, let's do this. And they got to praying. And we were stuck in a corner. Oh, my goodness, thank God most of them had their eyes closed because mine weren't. They were as big as saucers because they was praying like this. Lord, Lord God, we bring brother so-and-so before you, and we know he's a man with some sin. But, Lord, he's a man with a big heart. And, Lord, we know you got him walking through the fire. And, Lord, if it's your will to bring him through the fire, then bring him through the fire. But it's your will for him to be in the fire, stay in the fire, let him stay in the fire. And this went on and on and on for what? 20 to 30 minutes. Every bit of 30 minutes. One minute they're saying, bring him back from the dead. The next minute they're saying, let him stay and fight his fight of faith. And stay, in, stay in the stroke condition is what they were saying. I said, Lord, Mom and I, Mom and I are stuck. We're looking at this and we're going, oh, Lord, what do we do? We got, a, we got another friend of ours that we've been trying to get into Christ. And he's hearing this nonsense. And we went out of the room, and we looked at him, and he, and, and he said this. He said, well, that sealed it. He's going to die. That's what he said. I mean, he said, ain't not, and he didn't even know Jesus. Not like we thought he did, you know. I thought, oh, Lord. So we said, we, so this is what we said to our friend. We said, now, hold on, hold on. All words matter. We don't have to hang on there, Faith. Our faith can put him over. Can you get us in the room? Because he was real close to him. He said, well, I can get you in the room. I said, okay, let's go in the room. So Mom and I laid hands over and spoke life into him and all that good stuff. We felt good about it. But then here came the doubt and unbelief in family and friends. And they went right in the room, and we just looked at them. We said, we all, we gave it all we had. You know, but I said, we're just going to stand in faith, and maybe God can push through all of it. How much do you know we get taken into bondage? We get taken into bondage. That's what he said. He said, you get taken into bondage by the elements of this world, the traditions of this world, the rudiments of this world. That's what Paul was saying. Verse 4. He said, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, now, all of a sudden, verse 4, now all of a sudden, Jesus was, or here Paul was talking, present. Now Paul says, now wait a minute, though. He says, yep. He says, we all got caught up in our traditions and our rudiments, and we were all in bondage, but thank God. 
when the fullness of time was come. What is that fullness of time? That means once all of the prophecies were fulfilled. When once, it, once all the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled, he said when all those old things that had to line up got lined up, God sent forth his son. Oh, aren't you glad? Made of a woman. Why did Jesus have to be made of a woman? Because the original power, authority, might, and dominion was given to who? Man. The only way... For God to legally take back man's authority was to be a man. Now, could have God? Could God? Have, could, could Jesus have just come down in manly form? Sure, but he would have been here as God, not as man. Last time I checked, and let me tell you, science is trying real hard to change it. Last time I checked. The only way a human being can enter the earth is through the, womb, is through the womb of a woman. Now, they're trying real hard to change it, but they're not going to be able to. They can, they, can, they, can, they can get all the cells to do everything, but without the breath of life, that body ain't ever gonna, that body's never going to do what it's supposed to do, ever. It's got to have the spirit. He said, so he says, so he sent his son... He sent his son, made of a woman. That was the only way Jesus could legally enter the earth. If Jesus came as God, he would be no different than Satan. He had to come through the womb of a woman. Made under the law. How much do you know? He had to come through the Old Testament. He had to come through the law. He couldn't come breaking the law because he had to be the, the, the blood sacrifice. He had to be the perfect, sinless, blood sacrifice. He had to be the, the lamb without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That was the only way that he could come. And he was talking to, remember, he's, he was talking to uh, those that were not Jews, but he was also talking to Jews that were trying to convince people to come back under the law. And he said, no. He said, Jesus came through the law, and here's why he came the way he came. He came to redeem, which means to pay the price. To redeem means he paid fully. He redeemed, uh, to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus came to redeem all men and women that were under the law. Now, some people will say, well, that means he came, to, he, he came to redeem the Jews. Well, he did. But if you go back and you study in Genesis, you will find that the slaves could, come, could, could be part of the Jewish, they could come under God uh, if they would take on the law, if they would come, if they'd go through circumcision, if they would... Uh, pierce their ear. If there were certain things, if they would follow the law, they could come under the law. Okay? So if, if somebody other than Jew attached themselves to a Jewish family and um, came under the law, then they also became under the law. They became part of the Jewish family. Well, guess what? We're no different. We attach ourselves to Jesus 
and we come under the law of the Spirit, and therefore we become Jews by the blood of Christ. And so he said, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. First girls, daughters. Uh, He said, listen, he said, the whole reason that Jesus came is so that we could be adopted. So we could be adopted. How marvelous is that? He said this. He said, because you are sons, if you receive Jesus, how much do you know you're a son or a daughter of Christ? Absolutely. Because we are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Now, this is crazy. I have heard some people say that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, they'll hear hear the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, And they'll say that the Holy Spirit slash Holy Ghost is the ghost of Jesus. No. How much do you, what spirit did Jesus have? I've got quiet in here, come on. What spirit was on him? The Holy Spirit. Remember when he got water baptized at the River Jordan? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit came on him. So if he had the Holy Spirit... And this says God has sent forth Jesus, the spirit, or he sent forth the spirit of his son. What spirit did the son have? The Holy Spirit into where? Into our hearts. So where Jesus had the Holy Spirit resting on him, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Woo, Jesus, that's so fantastic. Crying, Abba. Father. Now that word Abba means it, it means it literally means Father. So you could so some people may read it as saying crying Father, Father. But this Abba is different. This Abba is the difference between uh, Judge Father, the Judge, the one that's gonna the one that's going to decide um, your outcome, versus the redeeming father, the loving father, the father who gave his all, including his own son, to, so that you could be his very own child. So Abba Father means the loving, giving, redeeming, compassionate, all-sufficient father. That's what Abba Father really means. It, this, is, this is the Father of love. And when we get the Holy Spirit on the inside of us, we go, ha woo, we're no longer. In fact, that's a big problem in the body of Christ today because we've got Abba on the inside. And because we've got Abba on the inside, we tend to not have that reverential fear of God anymore. We tend to not have that reverential fear. See, in the Old Testament, they said, man, you better act right or lightning's going to strike. Boy, you better act right or the world is going to, the earth is going to open up and swallow you. You better act right or y'all going to just fall over dead. You better act right or God's going to command the heads to be taken. But see, when we got over into the New Testament and Abba Father came on the inside we went, our view of God completely, cha- radically changed because it's, instead of seeing him as judge, we now see him as love. We now see him as, re- as uh, 
Redeemer, we now see him as the atonement. We now see him as the provision. And now we go, and now we just, we just want to curl up in his lap and go, ha, 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 yeah, daddy. Mm. No, we still need to keep reverence. We still need to keep that reverence. But, oh, how wonderful it is to have Abba. Abba, Abba, Father. Thank you, Father God. And, uh. I'm going to read verse 8 and 9, but we're, this is probably where we're going to end. I just want to kind of shift it just right here a little bit. Oh, seven's a great spot. Let's read seven. Let's not miss seven. Seven's even highlighted in pink. Uh, wherefore thou art not, therefore, wherefore, he said, because of the wonderful work of Christ, you are no more servant, no more servant, but son, daughter, child. You are now child, and if son, an heir of God through Christ. Now, I want to I say this, because a lot of times, I, I know this, and I, I know a couple of people that have been adopted, and I've, and I've talked to some people, when I say, man, you're the adopted child of God, and they go, so? Or they say, but am I really, or something like this? Satan will always Satan will always try to convince somebody that adoption is not as good as biological. Always. He'll always try to say, Oh, adoption's not good enough. That that family won't love you the way they'll love their biological children. They only they only received you because nobody else wanted you. And all these stupid lies. They're all these stupid, stupid lies. But let me explain this from the perspective of the parent. And Michael and I have never had children, and I desperately wanted children. Michael desperately wanted children. We desperately believed for children. The church was believing with us for quite some time. And I was getting frustrated with God and was still having some issues. And I went to God and I said, God, I just don't get it. I just don't understand it. And I said, I know by faith we've received will and faith. We had already had their names picked out because uh, uh, I desperately wanted, I've always wanted twins in my life. Um, and so we were believing for, I mean, if you're going to believe for a miracle, believe big, right? Uh, so just that was what was always in my heart and you know, and I told Michael, I said, well, just, you know, pick. I said, why don't you talk to the Lord and you pick the names and imagine that, the husband picking the names. And he came home one day, several weeks later, and all of a sudden he looked at me. He said, will and faith. And I said, what? I didn't even know what he was talking about. I said, what? He said, will and faith. And I said, what do you mean will and faith? He said, that's the baby's names. And I said, huh. I said, how would you come up will? with will and faith? He said, it's the Father's will and it's our faith that will bring it to pass. And I said, glory to God. I said, that's it. Will and faith. Praise the Lord. Will and faith. Thank you, Father. Now, let me say this. Will and faith are alive and well. They're in heaven. Michael and I made the conscious decision to stop believing for them to come in the natural because God revealed to us that that if we had will and faith, it would detract from what God had called us to. And though we would still do a work for God, we wouldn't be able to accomplish what God wanted us to accomplish because our attention would be divided. So we made that conscious decision to say, 
okay, Lord, we know by faith that we've received will and faith. We accept it. We look forward to meeting them when we get to heaven. I, I, I trust you that they're there. Um, but we're going to make the conscious. Michael and I prayed together. We make the conscious decision to leave them in heaven so that we can fulfill your plan and your work. And um, just our hearts just began to just shift and change. And the Lord really, it wasn't so much that our hearts changed toward the people because our heart was always the same towards them. But the Lord began to really show Michael and I that the love, the compassion, that desire to just help, that desire to make them succeed, that desire to give the church absolutely everything that we have is, is identical to the love that a father and a mother truly has for their actual children. And so when the father says he's adopted you, he does not love you any less than he loves his son, Jesus. In fact, he loves you exactly the same. And if it was, and I'm saying this from my heart, if it was actually possible for the father God to love his children more then he loves Jesus, I truly believe he would. Simply because of the love that I have. Yeah, I mean, he gave his son. Simply for the love that Michael and I have for, for, for our people, I mean, it's an overwhelming love. I mean, it's just truly an overwhelming love. And that's the love that God has loved you with. So when God says, I've adopted you, don't make that a small thing. Make that a really big thing. When he says, I've adopted you, you need to understand. And I tell, I tell, I tell, the, I tell people all the time, if you come to my house and you leave your, my house hungry, that's your fault. Because when you come to my house, I show you the refrigerator. I show you where all the dishes are. I show you the stove and the oven. I show you our big, huge pantry that's always, that's most of the time stocked. It's gotten a little low because I'm trying to, you know, curve a few pounds. But you can find something. It's a little low. She's not even alive. It's a little low. But I just tell them, if you leave my house hungry, it's your fault. Why? Because everything that I have belongs to them belongs to them you know and that's the father i sleep with my phone right next to my ear most of the time i remember to turn my ringer on but even then if i don't have my ringer on the vibrate the vibrations on and it will wake me up if necessary um it will and uh why why is it like that because i have such tremendous love and the love that I have is the love of the Father. So when the Father God says, I love you, I've adopted, I've adopted you, my son has paid the price so that you can lack absolutely nothing in this life, he means it. In fact, it grieves the Father. It absolutely grieves the Father when we will not take what belongs to us. I mean, honestly, truly, and I can say this from experience, there have been times that in different scenarios, different situations, that Michael and I have, we've had different people living with us, um, we've had foster kids and different things, and I mean, we go all out for them for Christmas, I mean, we'll pack it out under the Christmas tree, and they don't bother to show up for Christmas. 
We have a supply, and they won't come and partake in the supply. And that's grievous. It's grievous. We had a situation with one foster son. I mean, we had it figured out how to get him his college, how to get him his car. We had a brand-new phone lined up for him. We had everything all set. I mean, we had his future lined up for him. And he called one day, and he said, I don't want to come home. I want to go hang out with my friends and get high. I said, you have two choices. You can, I said, you can, come, you can follow curfew, and you can be in this house by 11 o'clock, or you can go out in the world. And if you choose not to be here by curfew, the provision is gone. Guess what? He didn't come home. The provision was gone. Because as a Christian, you can't be a doormat. As a Christian, you can't be a doormat. And we had dealt with him several times in several things. And he came back to us multiple times over the years and said, I messed up. I made the wrong decision. I made the wrong choice. But here's the difference. With humans, there's a ceiling. There's an end to our ability to supply. With the Father, there's no end. With the Father, there's no end. Because every time he'd say that, we'd look at him and say, our supply is no longer available, but the Father God's supply is. Every time. Every time. And he'd go, yeah, I know, I know. I'm just not there. I haven't seen him in quite some time. I don't know if he's there yet or not. Um, but you know what? The Father's supply is always there. And that's what Paul was saying. And, and uh, next week we'll go into it. But we'll see next week he says, you've tasted of the goodness of God. Why do you insist on continuing to go back? Why do you continue to go back? And we'll see that next week. Well, praise the Lord. I uh, preached myself happy. I'm so thankful for the Father's love. I'm so thankful that he counted us worthy to be adopted. Aren't you? Worthy to be adopted. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father. Well, Mr. Derek, seems how you won't be here next Wednesday. Why don't you do us the honors? Next Wednesday's his big day. Glory to God. Glory to God. He's doing good. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. And uh, so, uh, but we will have church. We will have church. <laughs> we'll be here. You'll be resting. You'll be resting. And uh, glory to God. Now, uh, Friday night prayer at 6. And then don't forget Saturday, the benefit for Misty and Todd Graves over here at the, um, at the depot. Um, it starts at 11. 11 to 5, is that correct? 11 to 5, they're going to have some meals. Is it barbecues? I okay, barbecue plates and hot dogs. And they're going to do... A cake auction, and they've got some raffles and all kinds of different things going on to raise funds. You know, um, this is a wonderful opportunity to minister Christ to this family. This is a wonderful opportunity to minister the love and the goodness of Christ. So if you can go and support them, even just a little, go and support them, give them love, and, uh, you know, just witness Christ to them. Um, I'm believing that they'll have a good turnout and that uh, the financial needs will be met. Um, and uh, we just thank God for it. And then, of course, Sunday morning at 10, 
And uh, it's just going to be a good, good week. And, and uh, I believe um, the fire is going to go out because we prayed for it and believed for it. And uh, they're going to get it contained. They'll at least get it contained. They'll get it knocked back at least. And so, Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. Father, we thank you that you sent your son so that we may be adopted into the family of God, so that we may be heirs and that we may rule and reign as the God of this world in and through the authority of Christ. Father, as we rule, you rule. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' mighty name. And, Father, we thank you that the seed that is sowed, Father God, that you bring each and every person a great increase, that that the uh, devourer is rebuked, and the blessings flow, that you make them a blessing to be a blessing. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. There you can serve the people. Glory to God. Thank you, Father. And, uh, yeah, Pastor Mike, he's been working from like about 7 o'clock in the morning till about 9 o'clock at night. So uh, hopefully he'll, we'll have him back in the house before too long. Then hopefully they'll get things underlined there. And uh, glory, glory, glory. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Don't you like our trees out front? Those are our trees from last year. They been they grew up big this year, didn't they? Huh? The what? Yeah, the, the, the little trees are back. The little trees are back where the flowers used to be. Well, glory to God, we're dismissed. Have a wonderful night. We will be decorating.